Last month, the courtyard outside of City Hall in Philadelphia became the site of a large public piece of artwork. Artist Sam Durant built a large labyrinth out of chain-link fence, but it's purposefully a labyrinth with no exit. You can go in, but you can't get out. It's designed as a, as a social commentary on, on the challenges of our, our criminal justice system, the, the feeling that, that was described to him by, by a prisoner when he was in the, the design phase of the process. He says the, the criminal justice system, it's, it's like going to a maze you can never get out of. And so the artist wanted the public to feel, even if just temporarily, that hopelessness that comes from being trapped in a cage with no one to help. An announcement of, of the exhibit began with, with this warning. Walking around Philadelphia with your head stuck in your smartphone, you might suddenly find yourself in jail. Trapped inside this chain-link fence. Imprisoned in the courtyard. But in, in Philly, it was, it was only temporary. It was, it was meant to raise social consciousness about public questions. In Jerusalem for Jeremiah, his imprisonment was lasting, and it was, it was real. He was trapped inside a maze. He was trapped in a city that he couldn't get out of. We can, wandering through an art exhibit, maybe get a glimpse of, of that feeling of hopelessness. But as we, as we wrestle with this chapter, we, we begin to understand the, the hopeless situation for the people of Judah for the people living in Jerusalem, for Jeremiah, God's prophet. The city is surrounded by the armies of Babylon, the greatest army on the face of the earth. There is no hope of victory. And Jeremiah, in a besieged city, is imprisoned within that city. He's a prisoner imprisoned in a besieged city. He's, the certainty of his confinement is based on the, on the king's anger. Zedekiah comes to him and says, for years, for decades, you've been preaching this message of God's judgment. But Jeremiah knows the certainty of the promise of judgment. It's a message he's had to say over and over again, and so he knows the, the certainty of his city's destruction because of God's anger against sin. And so what, what takes place here in Jeremiah 32, the verses we read, should be all the more surprising when we consider these circumstances. God asks Jeremiah to purchase a field. Now, this isn't just to give us a glimpse into to ancient uh, real estate transactions. This is meant as a symbolic action showing the certainty of God's promises. Because think about what a bad real estate deal this is for Jeremiah. First of all, he's in prison. Therefore, a field has no actual use to him. He can't farm it. He can't build a house on it. He can't even go visit it. Worse, he is trapped inside a city that's under siege. Now, it, it may be that this is taking place in, during the few months when the Babylonian army left briefly to go destroy the, the armies of Pharaoh who were coming up from the south. But the siege came back very quickly. It may have been that this was the time in which his cousin Hanamel could, have, could sneak into the city. But the problem is the field, the territory, is already occupied by the Babylonian army. So even if Jeremiah can get out of prison, 
and use the field, it's already under the control of the enemy. And so this is a terrible, a terrible deal. His, his cousin Hanamel comes to him, claiming the, 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 the redemptive promises of, of, of God's law. Back in the, the book of Leviticus, you, if you fell into poverty, then, then your family member was supposed to redeem that property, was supposed to buy it so that it wouldn't be lost to your family. It was a way to protect. And so, so Jeremiah is, is being asked to step into this role of the, the kinsman, the, the family member who redeems property. I mean, it's the story we see take place in the, in the Old Testament book of, of Ruth, where a kinsman redeemer is, is called in to the scene. But here, it's, it, w- w- Jeremiah would, would be suspect of this taking place without God giving the direct command that this is what you should do. Because if his cousin shows up and says, hey, buy this worthless piece of land, which is actually only going to be worth less next week than it is this week because, well, Babylon's just going to be more entrenched in their control of it, Jeremiah would just look at him and say, no, that's not a good deal. But, but God warns Jeremiah, tells him, this is what's going to happen. And then we, we read, Jeremiah says that, that I knew this was the word of, word of the Lord because this is what, just as the Lord had said, took place. And so Jeremiah buys this field, showing his, his certainty and the promises of God. This field will not be worth anything in Jeremiah's lifetime. And so what does he do? He takes the documents. He has Baruch, his, his servant, put them inside a, a clay pot so that they can be then stored and saved for generations to come. He puts them into the safety deposit box and says, they won't be worth anything to me but to future generations. We need to show that this property belongs to me, to my family. Jeremiah is showing us what it looks like to have hope, hope for the future, even even in the darkest of times. And so there's hope for us, even in the the difficult circumstances that, that we face. None of us, in a situation as terrible as Jeremiah's, for you at least had the freedom to walk out your door and join us this morning. So you have a greater freedom than Jeremiah had, and yet we have the same certainty of promise. As the chapter continues, Jeremiah, we, we turn from the purchase of the field to Jeremiah's prayer. Look at, look at verse 16 as, as Jeremiah then comes to God in prayer. I'm going to read verses 16 through 25. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children after them. O great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. You performed miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people, Israel, out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give their forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster upon them. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. 
Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. There's, there's great faith in this prayer, but there's also real pain. You know, look, look at the way the prayer begins. It, it begins with, with, a, with a word that's almost untranslatable for us, so the, the translators just give us the word, ah, it's just this guttural uh, uh, announcement. There's, they, it's as if Jeremiah is in such pain and turmoil. He doesn't even have words to begin to form to start his prayer. Have you ever had those kinds of moments? Those kind of painful circumstances when, when your instinct as a follower of, of God is, is to pray, but you don't even know where to begin. All you can do is moan or groan or yell. That's the kind of prayer that Jeremiah is bringing. It's a prayer in which he, he walks through the, the promises of God. He, he reminds himself of the truths that he knows, that nothing is too hard for God, that God has shown love to thousands. He then begins to recount the the history of God's people. He he reminds himself of of what he knows to be true, that God is the rescuer. He's the one who who rescued his people from Egypt. But then Jeremiah's thoughts return to his circumstances. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city? In verse 25, it almost ends with a question. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians... You, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. It's almost as if he's ending here with a question. Seriously? This is is your your response, God, to the horror taking place? Is is for me to to take the symbolic action of buying a field? I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer in its honesty. It starts with that guttural response and ends really with a question. I mean, it's almost as if the prayer is half finished here. But that's the way in difficult circumstances that you and I sometimes pray. Half-formed thoughts. The pain that's crushing down upon us. But Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's strategy is one we should follow. When circumstances push in on us, we should flee to God in prayer. And what does Jeremiah do? He reminds himself of what he knows to be true. God is powerful. God is loving. And then he reminds himself of of the history of God's people. Jeremiah faces difficult circumstances, circumstances that you and I understand. Not in the details of a a besieged city, but in the heartbreak of, of crying out to God. And when the world tries to answer these questions about, about suffering, about pain, about sorrow... The, the problem is without this biblical framework, the, the, the best that, that can be offered is, is a simplistic response. Well, you did this wrong, and so if you can change it, then you can change your circumstances. It might be advice about your actions or advice about the circumstances, or, or it's not simplistic, it's, it's naive. An answer the world might give to the suffering, it tells you that suffering isn't real. If you would just if you would just endure through it, then, then you, can, you can see past it. If you would just recognize that it's part of the fabric of the universe in which we live, and, and that can be done at, at a philosophical or a religious level, trying to just make evil part of the world in which we live. 
But you and I know that those simplistic, those naive answers don't really get it what we feel. They don't answer the ah of verse 17. We feel it in the depths of who we are. That that a world that's broken by sin should not be left this way. And so scripture is is honest with us. It, It brushes aside simplistic answers and says, yes, the world is broken by sin. There is real evil that crushes you. But it doesn't leave us there. Christianity is honest about the the pain in this world. And the Bible doesn't doesn't pretend to offer a full explanation for every instance of suffering. Yes, here in Jeremiah we can understand the details, the the broader, the the strokes of, of God's work in redemptive history. The people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah have sinned and God is bringing punishment. But that still doesn't answer the the specific details for for Jeremiah. Why be thrown into into prison? Actually, chapters 37 and 38 will describe this circumstance. He's actually thrown at times into a cistern, an an empty, basically a a dry well, and and left there. And so so the Bible doesn't pretend to to give us a, a full explanation for every detail in our lives and the suffering we face. But the Bible does absolutely give us the final answer. Because that was the, the very purpose that, that God was, was showing Jeremiah in the purchase of the field. And so Jeremiah comes to him in this prayer and says, but, but you've told me, buy this field with silver. Because the promise is secure. God will gain ultimate victory. The Bible gives us the certainty of God's redemption. God will buy back the land. It will belong to, to his people again. When you and I face face suffering, we we need to do what Jeremiah does. Turn to God in in prayer. Turn to God and hear the truths of his word. We need to trust the certainty of God's promise. Andy describes the the heartbreak of her divorce. Pastor Tim Keller shares Andy's testimony. Andy says, "I, I dropped to my knees when I got to the side of my bed. It was time to end the day, but but I couldn't yet. The ring had to come off. The ring had to come off. It was, it was time. Andy's divorce had been finalized earlier that day. Even though she admits her marriage had disintegrated years before. But, but Andy continued to wear her ring while she was married as a, as a reminder of, of hope. She says, no matter how hopeless things looked, God could turn them around. And so Andy sobbed this night after her divorce was finalized. She felt confused. She felt at the point of of emotional collapse, but but she could admit to herself that God had not abandoned her. That even here, she she could see that God was still with her. A friend had, had given her the advice, force feed yourself Scripture. Read Scripture even when you don't feel like reading it. Cling to the promises. And so that's what she did as she read through the Psalms, as she heard promises like those that that Jeremiah echoes, that that God is great and powerful. Nothing is too hard for God. That God is loving. He shows mercy to us. And so as she began to, as she crawled into bed, she, she did slip off that ring. She prayed, God, you alone are worthy of my whole heart's trust. 
And my trust, my life, my heart is yours for the rest of my life. And so as she, as she began to, to slip into sleep, she thought, tomorrow I'll buy a new ring. Not a wedding ring, just a different ring to wear to remind me of this new promise I've made to God. Well, the next morning she joined her, her weekly prayer group a group of women who gathered to pray. And, and they, didn't, they didn't actually spend time in, because of the busyness of their upcoming day. They didn't share requests. They just kind of jumped right into praying for each other. So there was no conversation that took place beforehand. And, and as they began, they began with, with silent prayer, which was their, their custom. And one of the other women in this group came and, and knelt down beside her chair and, and slipped a ring off of her own finger and handed it to Andy. She said to Andy, I, I want you to have this ring. Because I want you to know that, that God loves you, that you are his beloved. He is your provider, your protector. God will never leave you nor forsake you. God will be with you forever. Andy admits that the ring she was given is much more beautiful, much more valuable than any ring she would have bought herself. She hadn't told anyone about the idea of a ring. It had just come to her the night before. And he says, I can't tell you how many times in the years since that moment, a glance at that ring has calmed my fear, filled my loneliness, comforted me in my grief. I wanted a ring to remind me of my commitment to the Lord. And instead, I got one that will remind me forever of his commitment to me. See, there's nothing, there's nothing magical or powerful about that ring. It's, it's the promises of Scripture of which Andy is reminded when she looks at that ring. That God is the sovereign Lord, that nothing is too hard for him, that God is great in his power and his love. And so that's what we see when God then answers Jeremiah. He's sent to purchase the field. He comes to God in prayer, and now we see the, the revelation of God's power. Look at verses 26 and 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So this is God's response to Jeremiah's prayer. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? I mean, Jeremiah is coming to God with his questions. God, how can, how can you still be a God who's in control? How can you be a God who's loving? How can you be the God who cares for us when the siege ramps of the Babylonians are up against the walls of this holy city? And God, as he is prone to do, doesn't, doesn't give a detailed answer to the theological questions. He doesn't, even, he doesn't work through all, the, all, all of the circumstantial questions. He, he, he responds to a question with a question. Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? God wants Jeremiah not just to, not just to understand the circumstances. How will this play out here? God wants Jeremiah to turn and trust in him. And so he comes to him with the question, is anything too hard for me? And so we see here God's power, God's power to punish sin. Look at verse 30, where God says, the people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. Or we can continue into verse 36. You are saying about the city by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them 
from all the lands where I banished them. I mean, the, 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 the work that the translators have to do for us in verse 36, they actually end up skipping a word that's, that's in the, the Hebrew to make sense of it for us in English. Because God is saying, I am the God who judges, therefore I show my love. And to us, those sound like non sequiturs. Like, wait, you're, you're the God who punishes sin, therefore I love you. We, we think those things don't connect, and that's what, what Jeremiah is really wrestling with, isn't he? How can God say that he's a loving God? How can he be the God who, who shows his mercy to the generations of his people and yet punish sin? But for God, those, those two things aren't, aren't held as, as, as enemies. God proves his love for us by punishing sin. God is the God who has the power to punish sin, but he also has the power to save sinners, to redeem us, to buy us back. We saw last week, as, as Tom showed us, the, the covenant promises in chapter 31, the promises of the new covenant, this covenant that will, that will be extended not just, not just through the law given externally, but a law written on the hearts of, of God's people. We saw the promise that, that God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Well, now in chapter 32, we have the symbolic purchase of the field, Jeremiah's prayer, and God proves his power by reiterating the promises of the covenant. And actually, he, he pushes it further. Look at, look at what God says in, uh, in verse, verses 37 and following. God says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in, the, in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring my people back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so they will always fear me of their, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Do you hear the beauty of those promises that God is making to Jeremiah? That God will be the God of his people, that they will belong to him, that he will redeem them, buying them back, bringing them back to the land. Jeremiah is, is redeeming one little piece of property, but God will redeem all of his people, bringing them back. These are the promises of the new covenant, which, which is written on our hearts. And it's a promise. Look at verse 40. This shows us even greater than we saw in the last chapter. This is a promise that is an everlasting promise. This is an everlasting covenant that God makes with his people. He says, I will never stop doing good for them. I will love them with all of my heart and soul. That's the promise that we hear from God in this new covenant. That we have hope that God is the one who, yes, punishes sin, but saves sinners. And how ultimately do the promises of this new covenant come to us, the church? They come to us through Jesus. Jesus, who is simultaneously the judge who condemns sinners, but also the Savior, the Redeemer, the one who buys his people back. And consider the, how the, the ministry of Jeremiah points us toward the ministry of Jesus. He's a prophet of God who is imprisoned for proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the truth that God is the God who judges sin but saves sinners. 
Jeremiah is imprisoned in Jerusalem. Jesus is imprisoned in Jerusalem. Jeremiah knows the, the danger of his circumstances, and he's, he's sent to redeem one piece of property, but Jesus knows the full danger of the circumstances in, into which he walks, but he redeems the people of God. Jeremiah has to toss silver onto the scales, but Jesus sheds his own blood for us. And consider the horror of the circumstances surrounding the death of Jesus. Jesus crucified and dead and buried. We know the the horror from the the reaction of the disciples to the, the crucifixion of Jesus, that they looked at the circumstances and assumed that all hope was lost. There is no hope of salvation here. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not dead. God has raised him from the dead. Jesus went to the cross with the promise of the resurrection. And so you and I, in the misery and sorrow and pain of our circumstances, have the promise of the future resurrection when God will restore all things. We can have hope now because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. See, that's the promise to which we cling when we come to God in prayer. God, you are the God who rescues sinners, who through the exodus brought them out. God, you are the God who rescues sinners, who through the death of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, you redeemed us. You bought us back out of slavery to sin. This is the hope of the gospel, and this is the the gospel that, that God is calling you to believe to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ, to cling to these promises, that we can have hope now in our our difficult circumstances, hope for the future. What comes to mind when you think of Detroit, Michigan? Perhaps it's the glory days filled with beautiful cars or music, or maybe it's the sadness of a terrible football team. Or for, for most of us, unless you've lived there. Most of us, when we think of Detroit, Michigan, we have, we have an image of decay. A city built for millions that now has less than half of that living there. So empty buildings, empty factories, crumbling infrastructure. That's what we picture. Reet Schumach and her husband moved from the suburbs of Detroit into the Brightmoor neighborhood. They felt called by God to do something to help a city they saw falling apart. And they weren't just talking about the, the, the buildings boarded up or falling down. Reet said it was the hopelessness of the people that challenged her. She, she actually admits, she says, I hate big cities. So when the Lord called us here, there was no way for me to get around it. I spent many years questioning God. I spent many years trying to find another way. So they moved into the city. They bought property. Again, not a great purchase. Property that is likely to be worth less tomorrow than it is worth today. And she tried to figure out what what could she do. And she thought of her two great loves, children and gardening. The problem was she had no idea, how will this change a city? How can I? And, And so she bought property, and she started a children's garden. Children come, and they, the, the teenagers from the neighborhood come, and they, they, they keep track of the hours that they work planting and weeding. They sell the, the, 
the produce at, at farmer's markets around the city, and they take home profit from this small piece of land. Back in 2006, when she started the garden, it was just one woman with one garden. Today, there are more than 50 farms, gardens, and small little green spaces in her own neighborhood. She says, of the, on the 15 blocks that are, that are under the influence of our neighbors building Brightmoor community, there is virtually no more crime. When she moved in, the house next door to, to her garden was a, was a crack house. Every time they would call the police, the police would arrive too late. And so eventually, she and her husband bought the property, knowing they would take a loss on this purchase. But now, there's virtually no more crime. And so, so kids, when interviewed, they say, this neighborhood's safer. One little boy says, I can walk down the street now. Another says, there's peace here. A decaying city is a place filled with hopelessness. And so Reed's prayer, the prayer of her husband, the prayer of, of her neighborhood association is that, that God would bring hope to her little city, her little corner of the city. For Jeremiah, he had to rest on the future promises of God. There was nothing in his current circumstances to give him hope. For Reed, it is God's future promises that give her hope. She's relying on the power of God. This is what she says, I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus comes back. I'm looking forward to, and then she chokes back tears as the interviewer listens. I'm looking forward to that day when everything will be perfect. God says, through Jeremiah, I will bring my people back to this place. They will live in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And so we're left to ask the question that God asked Jeremiah. Is anything too hard for God? I invite you to bow your head with me in prayer. Father, we feel the, the weight of the sorrow and the pain and the brokenness, not just in our own lives, but in our communities. In our world, we see it splashed across the, the news pages of our lives. And so, Lord, we, we cling to your promises that there is coming a day, a day of real power and resurrection hope when Jesus returns. And so, Lord, as we, as we live in the midst of sorrow, as we live in the midst of sadness, let us cling to your promises. Lord, for those who have listened to your word and yet don't have faith in you, I pray now that you would help them to turn from their sin, that they would acknowledge that, that Jesus is the Savior, the Redeemer, the Rescuer that, that we need. Lord, let us cling to, to your power shown to us in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus, our Savior, from the dead. Lord, we come asking, asking you to continue to work in us and in our community. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.